0: Well our reading is uh, from uh, 1 Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 6, we're going to read the whole chapter. And um, we've been following Solomon as he uh, prepares to build the temple last week and here in this chapter he actually builds it. So let's hear God's word. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out from the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is in the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and ten cubits deep in the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running round the walls of the house, uh, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all round. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For round the house, the outside of the house, he made offsets, on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house and one went up by stairs uh, to the middle story and from the middle story to the third So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the words of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David your father and I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel so Solomon built the house and finished it he lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to uh, to the walls of the ce- of the ceiling he covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress he built 20 cubits Uh, of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls and he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place the house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers all was cedar no stone was seen The inner sanctuary was prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold and he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished also the whole altar belonged uh, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood each 10 cubits high 5 cubits was was the length of one wing of the cherub and 5 cubits of length the other wing of the cherub It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Round all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house was overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of the olive wood with carvings of cherubim palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees so also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and the two doors of cypress wood and two doors of cypress wood the two leaves of one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding on them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, in the months of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, The house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this passage and think about it, and think of of its significance, we pray you'd open it up to us, that we may understand and be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. So Solomon is set about the business of ruling. And uh, one of the important bits of unfinished business for his father, David, was to build a temple for uh, the Lord. And uh, David had an idea to, to do that in one, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, um, but that was left to, under the hand of God and the word of God, that was left to his son Solomon to, uh, to undertake and last time we saw how Solomon set about preparing for this project, negotiating with his neighbours and putting together a workforce and gathering all the, uh, the requisite materials that he needs uh, for, the, for the build project. And how, however, what, what we saw last time, as we saw last time, we, we need to keep in mind in reading all these kinds of narrative accounts, uh, how this fits in with the wider story of God's purposes and God's plans. And to understand, we need to understand that uh, God's f- purposes, His promises, uh, are unfolding uh, as time goes on. And so we need to understand what the promises were that were made some time before, and then observe just how it is that God arranges things so that those promises are fulfilled. This is how we looked at it last time. We remembered the promises of God. We remember how God is a God of providence who manages the affairs of men and nations uh, to bring about all that he has promised he would do. And, uh, and that has implications for how the people of God at a particular time uh, set about uh, uh, doing what they need to do in obedience to God and living according to his word. And so you see the promises, the providence of God leads to our planning and our doing all the things that we need to do. Uh, And there's a sort of chain of uh, causality, if you like, uh, there. And uh, Solomon is an example of that. He he remembers the promises made to his father, uh, David, and then he he sees the circumstances are are just right. There's rest all around the nation. Uh, He's no longer at war. Uh, There's no trouble and uh, now he can set about the building of the temple. And uh, he goes about it. And uh, what we need to understand, of course, is that behind all of this human activity that's described in a, in a lot of detail is that God is at work. God is at work. And so we come to this chapter and the description of the build itself and how the temple was, was put together. And again, it, one might look at this, and, and if you're not a builder, <laughs> which I think is pretty much everybody, uh, if you're not a builder, you might, and you're not interested in architecture and design, though, you might be interested in that. Um, you might be tempted to think, though, that what's the relevance of all this to us today? Uh, why, is it, why is it here in the Bible? And again, as we thought of last time, we need to think more deeply than just the surface story of, what's, of human activity that's going on here. And we need to set it within the framework of God's redemptive purposes. So how is God unfolding his redemption plan through the ages? And where is he going to go with it? Where is it, ending, where is it going to end up? And this is why I'm going to use this big word that I use every so often. Uh, there's eschatology here. Uh, they impr- built into all of these symbols and types of the Old Testament are the the last things, and we're go- we're going to see how that is in a minute. But there's eschatology here, so we always have to think eschatologically as we think about the Old Testament. Three things for us to to note this evening, and the first thing we need to see is. What's happening here is, there is a new stage in redemptive history, the building of the temple. Look at verse 1, um, in chapter 6. In the 480th and 80th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of uh, Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of of the Lord. Now, of course, this is a you know, it's a useful bit of historical data. 480 years after the, the day that Moses led Israel out of Egypt, and uh, you can set about dating things that happen in the Bible relative to each other, and uh, it's all very useful uh, and everything. And uh, I, you know, scholars have debated about uh, is it really 480 years or was it something else? And some people have disagreed, and uh, there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, that's not the point, though point is not to do some dating, though we can do that. There's something else at work here. Why is 480 years mentioned here? Why is this period mentioned? And it's as though the narrator is saying to us that, that all that time from the moment that Israel left Egypt was one age and now we're about to enter into Another age or another period of redemptive history. And perhaps we can see how this fits together. Uh, Jacob and his sons spent 430 years in captivity in Egypt, remember? And, And then after that 430 years, there's another 480 years. What, of what you might call wilderness wandering. Wilderness wandering. Of literally wilderness wandering, going through the desert and trying to get to the Promised Land. And then there were years of fighting. Fighting the inhabitants under Joshua and beyond. Uh, and Israel wasn't at rest. And so what you see is this picture of, of Israel in this 480-year period of uh, wilderness suffering and suffering at the hands of enemies. And now suddenly you've got a period of rest under Solomon. And it's like this is a new age that's starting. And this period now might be described, if you like, as a period of rest for Israel. So you see, see the pattern? Captivity, wilderness, wandering and struggle. Rest. That's the pattern that you find in the Old Testament. David thought he'd already he'd got to that point of rest in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because for a moment he was not fighting any enemies. And he thought, well I can build a temple now. But as you read on in 2 Samuel, you'll discover there's more fighting to be done. So it's not for him at this point. Israel is not yet at rest completely. But now Israel is at rest under Solomon. And uh, we saw that in chapter 5, verse 4. Now the Lord, my God, says Solomon, has given me rest on every side. And there is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so now Solomon can start building the building building the temple of the Lord and friends I think this pattern helps, recognising this pattern helps us enormously especially if you've been coming to our midweek bible study in Hebrews because it's very clear that that pattern of slavery wilderness wandering and rest is a pattern that is true of the Christian church today we were slaves. We were thinking about that this morning. We were slaves under the power of sin. Now we've been freed, but we're now into a period of wilderness wanderings. Like Hebrews 3 and 4 it speaks about how the church is going through this period of, of struggle, but it's a f- you're free. But where are you going? You're going to God's eternal rest. There is a rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4 and 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's that's the pattern that we're in. And so, if you're you know you're a Christian this evening, that's your experience, isn't it? Slavery. Now you're in the suffering phase, and the struggle phase, and the wilderness wandering phase. One day we'll be entering into that rest, that eternal rest in glory. It's an amazing thing. And so our hearts are filled with hope, and we can press on, uh, knowing what's coming. We're going to win. We've already won, in a sense because Jesus has won and, uh, but now you're in this wilderness phase of life with all its struggles and trials wrestling with temptation and unbelief and, uh, and so on you face this inner battle of the flesh versus this, the spirit as Galatians 5 describes it it's a struggle, and it's a trial, it's not easy um, but what we look forward to is that eternal rest that's coming and uh, one day we will enter into it and, uh, and guess what? What's going to be at that eternal rest? A glorious temple. Look at Revelation chapter 21. And uh, verse 22 says this. And it's it's a temple, but it's not like an earthly temple. He says this, I saw... He's he's seeing the, the city coming down. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. In Revelation 21. And he says, I saw no temple in the city. Okay? But then he says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So it's not a temple in the physical sense of a building, but it's the Lord himself. The Lord himself will come down and be the temple. And it's in that temple that we worship the living God in glory forever. This is the picture that's painted of the Christian life. So friends, be encouraged this, uh, this evening. And be encouraged as you read about Solomon's temple project. Because it is a pattern. It is a shadow. It's a, a prefiguring of a reality that's to come for us. And we're going to see it. We're going to experience it. Not simply the temple. And it's not simply the temple itself that points forward to the glory to come. But the whole pattern of Israel's experience points forward. Points to our experience and how God is going to redeem His people. It points forward to that glory that's to come, and gives us hope in trying times. So, friends, be encouraged as we read this passage. So, that's the first point: uh, a new stage in redemption is, pre- is, is marked out here. But the second thing I want to, to mention with you is to, uh, draw attention to is the glory of God, the glory of God. And for this, we need to look at the temple itself. And so let me just describe it to you first. Um, I wonder if you how much of it you picked up as you read through that great list of things. Um, but let me describe it first, and then I'll say a few things about it. First of all, uh, well, the division of the text is, is roughly as follows. From verses 2 to 10, uh, he's basically describing the exterior of the building uh, and the, the, the superstructure of the building Essentially, it starts off with a, a vestibule or a porch at the, at the front, uh, or a foyer, or whatever you might call it today. And then, as you move inside the porch, you come into uh, what's, what the ESV calls the nave. Uh, some translations call it the great hall, um, or the main hall, and that's a twenty cubit, uh, is it forty cubit by forty cubits, um, which is about. Uh, let me just, what that is about twenty meters wide you know square and um, and there are <clears throat> and then, as you keep moving through this great hall, uh, you come to the inner sanctuary, and I think that 's raised up a bit there 's some steps up into it uh, the height of the ceiling's smaller, and you go into this inner sanctuary and it 's a smaller room and that's the most holy place. It's described as that in, in verse 16. And then there are various rooms on the outside of that structure, uh, on three stories uh, rising up. And uh, as and becomes clearer later in the book. Uh, there's, a, there's a courtyard outside of it, sometimes called the inner courtyard. It's outside of it and there's some, there's some walls built around it. So that's 2 to 10. And then in verses uh, 15 to 30, we get a description of the interior. And, uh, of course, all the walls of the building are made of stone. Uh, cut stone, cut at the quarry, brought to the location and uh, put in place. Uh, nothing is cut at, in situ. And then the, the interior wall of the walls are lined with cedar. The ceiling was made of cedar, the floor of cypress wood, Uh, such that there was no stone visible on the inside. So you never see any stone as you walked inside. And the cedar panels on the walls were all carved with all sorts of flowers and palm trees and things. And uh, very ornate. But then, most amazingly of all, the whole of the surfaces... The walls, the ceiling, the floor, everything is covered in gold. It's overlaid with gold. You just imagine walking into that temple and you're just struck with the majestic glory of it. It'd be staggering. Absolutely staggering. And huge amounts of gold. (laughs) Huge amounts of expense. Nothing... Is too expensive for the Lord. And in addition to that, in the inner sanctuary, the smaller room, the holy, the most holy place, there are two, two huge cherubim with huge wings, and you know there are two of them, and their wings touch in the middle, and then there, the outer tips of the wings touch the walls. So all across the whole width of the thing, were these two cherubim. Standing behind the the Ark of the Covenant, now cherubim is important because it reminds us that the holy place is guarded by angels, and that takes us back to to Eden remember when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, and the cherubim with the flaming swords preventing access into towards the tree of life and here the two cherubim are are in the Holy of Holies. So nobody could go into that except the high priest once a year. It was a holy place. And we'll maybe come back to that uh, idea later. But, uh, well, having described all that, what's, what's the temple all about? What does it signify? Uh, why is it necessary at this stage in, 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 in the life of Israel? And the first thing to say about it is, of course, that it's to do with the dwelling place of God amongst his people. Um, Now, this is a theme that's all the way through the Bible, that God seeks to dwell with his people. He always, as our confession puts it, he condescends, he comes down to dwell amongst his people. And we see this in various ways. We see it in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. Where God created this place for Adam and Eve to live and to work. But also a place where they could have fellowship with God. And God would walk in the cool of the day. And have fellowship with Adam and Eve. And then later we see this desire of God to be with his people in the, the planning and the making of the tabernacle. Now you've got... When you come to the book of Exodus, and you read the book of Exodus, I mean, it's a rip-roaring story, all the way through to about chapter uh, 24. And then suddenly it goes into all this 16 chapters of the details of the tabernacle, how it's to be made, and the plans, and the, plans and the, uh, the, the design of it all. And then more chapters describing how it's actually been made according to the plan. And you think, well, why is there so much time, so much space given to the tabernacle? When you've got this rip-roaring story at the beginning. And it's because God wants to be with his people. And so the tabernacle is, is the most important thing that's happening within Israel itself. And so whenever uh, so the people are wandering through the desert. And they come to a camp in a place. And what do they do? They organize themselves in, in a circle round the center. And at the center is the tabernacle of the Lord. And the Lord dwells in the tabernacle the tent and God is expressing his desire to be amongst his people now there are limitations, you can't just walk into the tabernacle, you have to be a priest Uh, so your sin separates you still and it speaks of the holiness of God but God wants to be amongst his people and and then having been restored into the promised land, you see this uh, this tent is is made more concrete in the temple itself. It becomes the center of national life. Okay, where next do you see God's coming to be amongst his people? Well, it's in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. God with us is what Emmanuel means. And John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that he dwelt among us and... You could translate that as he tabernacled amongst us. That he in his own body, as he takes upon himself human flesh, is the tabernacle in which God dwells. All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And so Jesus Christ tabernacles amongst us. And is there more? Yes, there is. Where is he now? Where where does God desire to dwell now? In the temple called the church. The church is a temple. And he comes into it by his spirit. Hence Pentecost. Pentecost. At Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells amongst his people. And in a sense the, the church is baptized in the spirit. The whole church is baptized in the Spirit so that he dwells amongst his people. And so when the people of God gather together, who else is present? God by his Spirit. This is the temple, the living stones that we we make up. This living temple. And God dwells amongst his people. And then finally, we see, as we've mentioned already, Revelation 21. And we see this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And there's no temple building, but... For its temple the Lord uh, the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are, are its temple. And it's not in that case that God enters a special building in eternity. Rather, God Himself is the building into which we come and have unending fellowship with Him forever. See that picture whole from creation? all the way through to eternity God wants to be with his people so that's the first thing to say about the temple what it represents but here's the, here's the second thing to say about it that this temple actually represents creation you may be surprised by that but it, in, in some sense it represents creation creation And you can see that in the way that there are flowers and palm trees and later you'll see there are pomegranate carvings and and lily carvings and all sorts of uh, uh, not agricultural, what's the word? Horticultural imagery built into the structure. And it's almost like the temple is made to be like a representation of the creation or the cosmos. With God at the center. And it is an amazing, amazing thing. So in one sense, the temple represents creation. But here's the third thing about it. It represents new creation. It looks forward to new creation. You see, in the midst of all this splendor, there are various doors preventing and, and curtains, preventing willy-nilly entering into all these places for now. But it holds out the hope that one day somehow all those barriers will be broken down. And we will have access into the fullness of God's new creation. Free and unhindered access. Well, of course, that is going to come. The mighty curtain that separated the most holy place from the great hall has been torn in two. Isn't it? Marvelous. And how did that happen? It happened when Jesus died on the cross and so the book of Hebrews takes it up and he says, we enter into the holy place through his flesh, which is the curtain. Oh, sorry, the curtain, which is his flesh. Like Jesus' death. is, as it were, the tearing of his body. Is the means by which we can enter into the Holy of Holies. And so the temple is a, a picture of what's to come. And we see the picture in Revelation chapter 21. And friends, So you can see there's a wealth of eschatology in the temple that helps us to understand where we're going as Christian people today. Both in the temple and, as we'll see, in the parts of the temple, in the furniture and furnishings that comes later. And all of this is designed, all the gold, all the ornateness of it, is designed so that we can have that sense that we can gaze upon the glory of God and have fellowship with him and have a picture of what's what's yet to come. And so that fills our hearts with desire for Him. That's how we should read this. It fills our hearts with desire for Him. That's why God gave the temple. Well, as we finish, let me uh, just mention one thing, one part of the passage that we have not touched on yet, uh, because this is a part of the passage that speaks to our priorities. This is a third point: our priorities. You see, there's a question that arises that is a very modern and up-to-date kind of question. What does it matter to have a fantastic building if then the people whom it serves are not faithful to the one for whom the building is built? Imagine that situation where you have this marvelous building where you could be at the center of your worship. And then the people themselves are not faithful to God. And I think you can appreciate the problem even today. You know, why should a church have a fantastic building if the people are just not going to be that bothered about worship? Which brings us to these verses that we've actually skipped over—verses eleven to Um, thirteen—and it comes as a bit of a surprise. These verses. Because you know two to ten are describing you know structures and so on, and uh, and then it goes to verse fourteen and he continues on and moves to the interior and describes all the interior. And uh, if you missed out eleven to thirteen, you could probably just read it through and and you wouldn't skip a beat. It wouldn't be odd at all. It would just flow one into the other. But suddenly in verses eleven to thirteen, he throws in this little word to Solomon. And he says, concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David your father and I will dwell among your children, the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And of course this um, as one commentator puts it, an intrusion into the text. It kind of starts you. you know, what's why have you suddenly gone there? Now we're back to a list of things in verse 14. Why is that there? This intrusion um, signals something vitally important. That for all the, uh, That this is to be a splendid building for God. What is more central than all of that is that the people commit themselves to being faithful to his word. And believing the promises and doing all that he commands. Now you might say, well, that's, that's a command especially for Solomon. What about the rest of the people? It doesn't mention all the other people. But let me just suggest this to you. that As the king goes, so the people go. Um, this is, I've used this saying before when we were in Hosea. H- but there's a saying in politics that says, the fish rots from the head down. <coughs> The fish rots from the head down. What it means is that when the head is rotten, the people will, will follow and become rotten as well. Uh, and so, if you, as true in politics, you know, if our politicians bear a great responsibility for the, the state of the people. To be a politician is a, a, a tremendous responsibility because as you go, so the people will follow. And people, politicians know that. They, know, they often talk about leading in directions that the people don't want to go. And that's a dangerous thing, possibly. Sometimes it's a good thing, but sometimes it's a dangerous thing. And this can be, so it's true in politics, it can be true in church leadership as well. As the head goes, so do the people. As the minister and elders go, so too do the people. That terrifies me. I remember hearing as a young man, just well younger man <laughs> entering into the ministry and hearing some preachers saying you know after 5 or 10 years the sins of the, the pastor are the sins of the people that's a terrifying thought because here's the thing you know if your minister or your elders indulge in a sin and they don't really deal with it and they indulge in it they're not going to speak to the people about that same sin because they're, they're being hypocritical they're going to allow your sin to follow And so the sins of a minister and the sins of elders will often find their way into the congregation. So if the minister has a besetting sin, he's not going to be faithful in dealing with that sin with other people. And similarly, the priorities and spiritual focus of the minister are going to rub off on the people, and the elders as well. Friends, that's a warning for us, and especially for us who are elders In this church. Friends, as we look forward to the eschatological fulfillment of all that the temple represents, our responsibility now is to commit ourselves afresh to the Word of God, to believe what it says and do as it commands. And God will be faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, amazing picture of the temple that's before us. And we thank you that it points to something far greater of eternal significance, the glory of God, the new creation, and fellowship with God forever. We pray, Lord God, you'd help us to live in the light of that, to have hope uh, as we struggle through difficult things in this life, that, Lord, our eyes would ever be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.